I think now that's how coffee should be. I was um, down in the very south of Ethiopia having got used to coffee and I went to this very, very poor village and they served me up a cup of coffee in honour of my being there and sharing with them. And I had gone through this whole change in my understanding of coffee and as I got to their coffee, I, I felt myself going, there was stuff in it. There was stuff kind of floating in it. And I was a good host. I was a good guest. I didn't say too much. But finally, I couldn't help myself because I'm inquisitive. I said, so what's in the coffee? You know, what's the stuff? And we kind of had this conversation back as to how good or not this coffee was. These people were so poor, they couldn't afford coffee beans. What they bought was the cast-off rejects, the outside husk of the coffee, and they used to roast that and grind that to make their coffee. And that was how they made the coffee. And so I understood where the coffee came from and I was trying this coffee. And uh, I said, look, there's, there's another flavour in here. I, I can't quite place it. Can't quite place it. We were down very far in the south, right on the edge of the desert. So everything was very, very dry. And so I, being inquisitive, because they made the coffee cups out of those gourds. You've seen, I don't know if you've seen them on TV. They cut the top off, it's dried and they hollow it out. And, and I said, maybe the gourd wasn't clean or something. You know, there's not a whole lot of water around here. And they said, no, cleaned it this morning. Cleaned it this morning. Everyone washed it in the morning. Being an inquisitive soul, I said, so how do you wash it out here where there's not any water? How, how, how do you do that? And they said, well, it's pretty straightforward. It's fairly easy. Every morning as the ladies go out of the tent in the morning, out of the hut, you know, they have to relieve themselves. So they all do it in a bucket, and that's how we wash the dishes in the morning. We make sure that it's all freshly clean. I said, I understand. <laughs> I get it. Having understood what was going on, I could ask for a second cup of coffee. Everything was fine. <laughs> the second half of that story is just for interest. All right? If you wash your dishes in urine, it doesn't taste good. That's just end of the line. But my... <laughs> Culture changes back and forth as depending on what's good and what's not good. And we seem to have this idea that as society changes or as cultures change, as people move, that what is good and what not is good goes back and forth with those things. So that if a whole group of people get together and say, this is okay, this is how we behave, this is how we treat each other, we kind of go with that, don't we? And we say, hey, that must be what's right. If a whole other group of people go in another direction, they say, look, this is how we think things should be, sometimes our thoughts can actually drift and change with them. We come to a passage tonight where, where Paul is talking about a number of things with Timothy. And in each of these things, it's in Paul is trying to say to him, look, God has a plan and a way to work through this. Society is going to change and try and pull you to move another way. And going contrary to that is going to be difficult, but you, Timothy, have to man up as the leader in the church here and do what God is directing. And I have to say that as I come to passages like this, I have a struggle with them because sometimes even my church culture, which tends, I think, sometimes to follow society at times, needs, has a drag on me. And when scripture says to do something, it's really hard to move back from that. So we're going to discuss 
three things if we get to them, two things if we don't get to the third, in which case Pastor Darrell can preach on it next week. <laughs> First two verses are Paul's comments to Timothy on how to rebuke people within the church. We've talked over the last few weeks that we as Christian people have a responsibility to keep others within the Christian faith accountable. And particularly those who are in a position of leadership have a responsibility to keep the family Christ-like. When we see people heading off on one thing, we have to shift them back to being looking more like Jesus. Already by saying that, we're being countercultural. We in society do not like to rebuke someone else. What right have I got to rebuke you? I'm an individual, you're an individual. If that's the way you think you should go, then do it. Most Saturday nights I go for a walk to try and get my sermon in place and for some strange reason I always end up in the valley and the city where there's this group doing evangelism because I like to wander around the crowd and kind of tag on and start to chat with people. And there's this one heckler who's there almost every week heckling and I've watched him for about the last three or four weeks heckling. I kind of couldn't put it up with anymore so in a very gentle way I kind of pulled him aside and said, you really... You're obnoxious sometimes as you heckle these people. What is it with you? And we got into this conversation which started at a higher fever and became very friendly in the end. And basically he, he ended up by saying, look, that's your opinion and this is my opinion. There is no truth. And for some strange reason, even the church has kind of picked it up. This is the way I do it. That's the way you do it. We don't have any way of talking with each other about this. Let me do my thing, you do your thing. And the church tends to operate. We pick that up from society. But Timothy, and as we've looked at, says, no, we're to keep each other accountable to the faith. And particularly those who are elders, pastors, are responsible to do that. And so Paul is going to tell Timothy, how do you rebuke people within the church? Because Timothy was sure to fall into either that camp, it's really a struggle to, to rebuke this person, or the other way that we sometimes do it, and that is we come across and we just tell them straight. I wanted to share with you guys that you did that bad. You know, man up, fess up, do it properly. And we come down, bang, bang, bang. And he doesn't want him to act in that way, which is one reaction that happens. He didn't want him to react the other way. He says, how do we in a godly way rebuke one another? In the Greek, there is this... Do not rebuke an older man harshly, which means don't, don't beat up on a guy, right? but exhort him as if he were a father. The next three statements don't have this word treat. It's translated treat in the NIV and in most places. It's just kind of blank. In other words, all of these other statements relate back to that first comment that he's making for Timothy about older men. So pretty much it says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Do not rebuke a younger man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your brother. Do not rebuke an older woman harshly, but exhort her as if you were she your mother and younger sister, etc., etc. That's kind of how it goes. So his whole comment is how do we keep one another accountable, particularly for Timothy as an elder pastor, how he's supposed to deal with people. And it's this thing which he's trying to tell Timothy, come out of the way you might normally want to deal with it and deal with it in this way. It's appropriate for elders and pastors in the church here. But if that's how we are supposed to treat one another, then by implication, as we keep each other accountable, 
the same idea is supposed to be flowing out in the way we interact with one another. So let's just quickly go through this. He says, firstly, do not treat an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Now, please note, the father he's talking about here may not be the way you treat your father, the way that society treats fathers these days. I've been in the supermarket and seen kids talk to their dad, teenagers talk to their dad, and that's not what he means. He's not saying treat like that. He's got this picture of a father as someone who is honoured and respected. He said, even if you have to go and rebuke someone who's older, an older man, Tim, when you do recognise he's an older man, understand that he's an individual, understand where he is, understand what he's done in life and treat him respectfully as you would your dad. I don't go up to my dad, even when my dad does something wrong, and say, hey, dad, you did that wrong and I want you to know you have to get it right next time. My dad might very graciously listen to me, but I've just been rude. I need to go and say, hey, dad, you know, I was watching the way you did that and I was wondering, is that really the best way that you would do this? You exhort lovingly as you would your father. He then says, if you're going to exhort younger men, do it as you would your brother. That doesn't mean you come alongside them and give them a wedgie. All right? What it's saying, you don't treat them like you might treat brothers in a bad way, but as you would treat someone whom is a loving, caring part of your family and you want to encourage them on. Blood is thicker than water. You want them and their name and their reputation to be something that you lift up. You see, you come alongside them as you would your brother for their good, for their care, for their nurture and you treat them in that way when you rebuke them. You treat them differently than you do older men. Our, our habit is to treat people the same. And he says, no, even though the rule is there, even though we're to keep each other accountable, know what people are like. I think his examples here of older, younger, older, younger within genders is only a small subset of what it's like here. When we treat people, understand where they've come from. This is one of the things that psychology actually did think is very helpful when it looks at personality types. People are different. Recognise that difference. Recognise that they're a person in their family and treat them accordingly. I have three brothers. Their personalities are totally different. Even though I treat them as brothers and care for them, the different way I respond to them goes in line with how I know and what I know about them. That I aim to come alongside in a manner which is helpful and encouraging them to get them on the right track. He says, if you're talking with older women, treat them as you would a mother. Now, one of the sayings is that uh, only evil people hate their mothers. I don't think that's true. Sometimes mothers are evil too. And it's hard to love your mother. It's not talking about that sort of mother, wicked mother. I don't know if you had one or not. This is a rebuke to me. My mum's lovely. I don't always treat her lovingly. I should not treat old women as I treat my mum. I'm too rude to my mum sometimes. What this is saying is you need to treat her as mum should be treated. With respect. With honour. Come alongside. Encourage. If you're having to rebuke an older woman. And then he says, if you're coming and you're dealing with a young woman, deal with her as you would your sister in rebuking. For all of us, if you're an older man, it means you've not only got younger brothers that you're dealing with, but maybe even sons that you have to deal with and rebuke in a particular way. We as a church are family. 
This is how we're supposed to deal with each other. Just a quick note, absolute purity is the bit that he tags on at the end. Tim's a guy. He says, as you go and you deal with younger women, treat with them as your sisters in absolute purity. My sister, I have one, is beautiful, I think. She's my sister. She's gifted in many ways. I never wanted to kiss my sister. I never lusted after my sister. Doesn't mean she's not beautiful. It's just that's not how you think of your sister, is it? If you do, you're wicked. Talk to me afterwards. That's not how you think of a family member. You don't treat them as someone you might want to conquest or not. You're not someone you eye up and you look up. What he's basically saying, Tim, is as you go through the churches, you're dealing with young women, younger women, and you have to keep them accountable. You have to deal with them. Treat them like you would your sister. The idea is that the relationship between you is that of family. You're not trying to see them as someone whom you can conquer or get close to. And the same would be true if this is being applied to you and you're a girl as you deal with guys. Pretty much what it's saying is that in all of the, the relationships that we have in this church, in the church, we have them on the family scene. Take note of that. Relate to people in that way, particularly as you're rebuking them. What that means is if you see someone sitting off on their own by the side, by themselves, do what you would do in a family setting if that's a nephew, a niece, or a young person or a brother or sister who's out on their own. You go and talk to them. That's what families do. You don't let people go off by themselves. How can people come in and sit in a church in a seat by themselves with no one around them? How does family let that happen? No. You just go and you sit next to someone so that you can communicate together. This is what families do. And Paul says, that's what I want you to do in the family. The second part, we're not going to get to the third part. Lucky Daryl. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Within the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, there are three groups of people whom the people of God were supposed to care for, recognized as needy people. Widows, fatherless, and aliens, refugees. Basically said to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, these three groups of people within your community are people who are within need and you need to care for them if they have no one else to care for them. In fact, he said, if you don't care for them, note that I am watching down and I am concerned for them and I will be the one who looks after them and cares for them and I will judge those who do not look after them properly. They're the ones in need. Why, why was it that group of people? Basically, I suppose, because the family structure was that which was supposed to be central to Israelite life family structure, the clan structure, right? so that everybody was supposed to be connected in with a family, having people around them to care for them. That was what was supposed to happen. If a husband died and so a wife was left alone because the husband was the one who did the farming and got the work and bring everything and he owned the land, she was left most likely destitute with no one to look after her. And so she was supposed to be cared for. Her children, who had no father, there was supposed to be this idea of coming and caring for them to make sure that they had training as they grew up to be cared for, to be loved, to be made a part of the community. 
these were the ones who were most likely to not have people to care for them financially and physically and emotionally. And so the people of Israel were supposed to care for them. Similarly, aliens, refugees who were coming into the land who didn't have family around them and who didn't have land which they owned, they were the poor. They were the ones who didn't have somewhere else to be and they were supposed to be cared for. Now, in the New Testament, the church recognised that there were going to be the needy amongst them. And so Paul is now giving some statements here about how the church is supposed to deal with the needy. How do we deal with the needy? I struggle with this one. I think of those people back in Ethiopia who were so poor that they couldn't even buy coffee. What's our responsibility with them? I was walking in the valley last night and I walked past piles of vomit up past the casino. I was thinking, what do do you think about the people who are stuck in that position, people lying down there? What's my responsibility to them? You have people knocking on the door and say, we have no food. How do we deal with them? We have single moms who are trying to look after a family and struggling. How do we look after them? What's the Christian response? What's the Christian world do? I think often what we do is we, we tag along with society or we tag along with a particular way of thinking that we've been brought up with and that's what drives us. That's what drives our worldview. And Paul's trying to say here to Timothy, hold on a second, the church needs to deal with poverty. It needs to deal with those who are in need in society in a particular way. Some of what he's going to say here, you're going to look at me and say, oh, you can't say that. That's just wrong. right? Take a deep breath. Have a look say, is this how God is saying things in this passage? Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. The first statement that he makes here is that some of the widows are not really in need. His first statement to Timothy is that what you need to be is you need to be discriminatory. Maybe that's a bad word. You need to, what's a good, politically correct, you need to be discerning, right? Which really means you need to be discriminatory, right? (laughs) What it basically means is if you have a group of people who come, you have to pick and choose those people who appropriately receive your help and those who don't receive your help. And everyone says, hold on a second, that's not Christian gospel. Christian gospel, if someone comes and needs you, give. I know, I've been guilty of saying that to myself. Paul says, no, there are some who are truly in need and there's those that aren't in need. Don't give to those that aren't in need, give to those that are in need. Give proper recognition, the word is actually honour. Honour to those. And the word honour there doesn't just mean Wow, that's amazing. But it means give them some money. Help them out. Give them something to help them in their need. It's not just the words, the honour, the attitude of respect, but it's the cash, the food, the housing, whatever it is. But the first point here is you have to be discriminatory. And he gives a few principles on how we are as Christian people in dealing with the needy to be discriminatory. Who's happy with the word discriminatory? About a quarter. Who's happy with discerning? More. 
All right, we'll use discriminatory. <laughs> right. What's his first thing? He says, but if a woman, if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. He says, as someone comes to you and they say they're in need, he says, just check whether someone else should be doing their job and aren't. Make poverty history is a fantastic saying, isn't it? I know that I've thought about that. Make poverty history seems to be something we can all grab hold of and say, this is absolutely wonderful. That's what we want. Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you. He says, poverty is never going to be made history. We can want it all we want, but it ain't going to happen. Why is that? For some strange reason, the world, and I think this flows into the church, we think the problem with poverty is money or stuff. Stuff is the issue. If people have stuff, if people have money, there'll be no poverty. If we redistribute wealth, then there won't be poor. Jesus says, no, you're always going to have the poor with you. Why? Because the root problem of poverty is not stuff and money and redistribution. The root problem of poverty, need, is sin. People don't live as God intended them to live. Either people treat others badly and that puts them into need, or they treat themselves badly and they put themselves into need. Throwing money at a situation, giving, without recognising what is the root problem, doesn't solve it. If I sit and I drink or I spend my life on drugs and I spend all my money on that and then I say I don't have anything to eat, throwing money at it doesn't do anything. It just helps me continue on in the lifestyle that I'm at. In the next section, Paul says pretty much what you're doing, those people who continue in the lifestyle, their wanton lifestyle, even if you give them money, they're dead anyways. Why give to the dead if they just continue in their death? Give to those who are alive, those who are moving, those who are growing. So firstly, he says, in your discrimination, you have to be careful. If there are other people who should be doing their job, then get back to the root of the issue. Go back to the family who's not looking after their aged mother or aged grandmother and say, hey, man up, woman up, do your job. See your mother, see your grandmother, she's in need. What are you doing about it? Take her in. Look after her. It's your job. Let's deal with the, the issue that's at stake here. Rather than just helping this person and allowing those people to continue on with the bad action that they're doing. Jesus, in terms of the gospel, we'll get to this in a moment, but the gospel is not something which covers over sin, it deals with sin. Jesus is in the business of reconciliation. He's in the business of redemption. He's in the business of change. This is the gospel message that we have. God, when he comes and in his grace, Jesus dies on the cross. Our sins are paid for. And God wants that all might know him. Or might come to saving knowledge of Christ. Yet those people are responsible to turn, to repent, to put themselves under the lordship of Christ, 
Just because the grace is there, he doesn't throw his arms around everybody and huddle them all in and say, you're all welcome anyways. He says the situation has to be redressed and has to be dealt with. And so Paul's first thing here is you need to be discriminatory. You've got to send people to deal, get, deal with the issue. If someone comes in and they're saying, look, I'm hungry, I, I need food, I don't have anything, you say, well, yeah, fair enough. What did you do with the, the, the check that the government gave you last week? Where's that gone? Well, I spent that. What did you spend it on? I gamble. Okay, well, let's deal with the gambling issue. We'll help you, but we've got to deal with this gambling issue because that's the issue that's at stake here. You've got the cash. You should be able to live. That issue has to be dealt with. What he's saying is your discrimination has to get back and deal with the issue. He does say, the second point, the widow, verse 5, who is really in need and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for our help. This is probably the one that I find a little bit more difficult to say. Right? What is the first one is, who's the woman in need? The woman in need is one who has nobody else to care for her. Deal with the situations and look after those who have nothing, nobody to help them. But the second one, who's the woman in need? The, the widow in need is the one who is really left all alone and then it has this added on bit as well. When you've got all those people who are really alone and you've put them in one basket, you then actually have to be discerning, discriminating again and you pick some of those out. Who are the ones who are really in need there? They're the ones who actually turn to God in prayer and ask for his help. They're the ones who actually respond to the fact that I'm asking for help and I need to change and God is the one who's going to be helping me in this. We say, no, hold on a second. I need to show the love of God to everybody regardless of how they respond. Paul says no. Part of their response, can, is con your, your help is contingent on how they come back at you with this. It's how, you, how, how they respond. Yes, you go out and you're the hands and feet of God into the community. And as you go and you share the gospel with them, so you share and you help with them with your needs, you're also taking this love of God and you're wanting them to recognise this is God's work amongst them. I've done that sometimes. And you say, look, I just want to give you this in Jesus' name. They say, I don't want the Jesus' name bit. I don't want the sermon. I just want the money. That's what I want. Well, pretty much what Paul is saying is if they don't take the Jesus name bit, they don't get the money. If they don't recognize that this is them having a relationship with God, then whilst you might help them the once, you don't keep doing that. God expects a reaction back when he interacts with us. Jesus, when he walked on the earth as he intermingled with people. He didn't put people down. He didn't judge them. He didn't say that they're not valuable. But every time someone came in contact with Christ, there was either a turning towards or a turning away. There was no ignoring Jesus. And pretty much he says, as we go out with the gospel to share with people, as we try and meet their needs... The ones who are really in need are the ones who are recognising that this is from God and they continue on in their thanks to God day and night. In other words, it's a helpful step with them in their discipleship to come to know Christ. 
His next statement says, but the, but the widow who lives for pleasure, she takes the money and goes and lives for pleasure, 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 and doesn't turn back to God in thankfulness to him. She's dead, even while she lives. She's not really in need. He almost comes out straight and says, next time, tell her to go away. Be discerning. You pick those who can't, who, who, if they've got somewhere else to go, send them there to get done because that person has to deal with their responsibility. Those who are really in need, if they're prepared to know that this comes from God, it's in the name of Christ and they're responding to that, they're giving thanks to God, they're responding in prayer and thanks to God, then keep going with it. They are really in need. But if they're not prepared to understand that what they're doing is they're coming and accepting this in Christ's name, they're not really in need. They're dead anyways. Then verse 7. Give the people these instructions too so that no one may be open to blame. Not just when people come to the church. It's our money. When we are giving to God and we are helping in need, make sure that everybody knows this so that they're not to blame. Why does he say that? Two reasons. One, if you have an aged mother or grandmother and you're not looking after her, shame on you. If you're not caring for your family and there are people in your family who are in need and you're leaving the looking after of their needs to someone else, don't do it. He says you're worse than an unbeliever if you let if you, if you let that happen amongst you. How's it worse than an unbeliever if they're doing the same thing? Because you know better. You've had the example of Christ. You live within the family of God. If you're not looking after those within your family who need, if you're not caring for those for whom you have responsibility, shame on you. The church should be totally different in terms of the way that it cares for people than is the outside world. We, we look at how God says to live, and even though it's countercultural, we do that. Do I want my parents to come and live with me when they're old and decrepit? I hope they never listen to this sermon. <laughs> no, not really. I love my mum, I love my dad, but they're cranky old people at times. Hard to get on with at times. Right? I don't necessarily want them sharing a kitchen or a bathroom with me and my family. Well, they can live downstairs or something. But if I just shunt them off and leave them somewhere else and don't care for them, I'm worse than an unbeliever if that's the need that they have. Maybe it is that I, I, I care for them and I visit them and they go and they stay in this really beautiful sunset villa or something. Maybe that's what happens. But I need to take all my responsibilities seriously in caring for them, visiting them, sharing with them. And that's not easy when we look at the distances apart that people live. So maybe I have to do something to make certain that that happens. But what it's saying is that if we don't look after our families, shame on us. But it also means as we deal with our wealth and we as Christian people reach out in caring for the needs of other people, how are we going to do that? What's that going to look like? like are we going to be discriminating discerning giving to those people who 
are in need? Are we actually, in other words, going to get back and deal with the root issues with people? Invest ourselves in their lives. If the problem is they've got a bad relationship with their family, let's get in there and help deal with that situation. If they don't want help, step away. But if we're going to be involved, let's not throw money at a situation and cover over the sin. Get in there and deal with the issue where it's at. If someone's got a problem with drink or with gambling or with drugs, it's not enough to give them food. Get in and deal with those issues in Christ's name. Help them to get involved within an understanding of the gospel in the church. Let them know that this help is coming from God through his people. This is Christ's love reaching out to them. The hard part of that is if they don't want that, move on. But that way we're actually dealing with the issue, dealing with the sin. Because that's what Christ came to deal with. He wants a restoration of relationships, not just a covering over of it. We won't deal with the third issue about women being put on the list. But I just want to make a number of things. What he said in the first section about interrelationships and the fact that we deal with people as individuals and who they are carries over into the second. There's this huge fuzziness about what I'm saying, isn't there? It's really hard to say in a particular case, what do I do? Paul in the first one gives some very clear examples. He says when you're dealing with older men, Treat them like a father. Older women, treat them like a mother. This is the principle. And you're going to treat them within there a little bit. Each person is different. He's saying as you're dealing with the needy, there are some firm principles you follow and within there, there has to be a bit of give and take because individuals and situations change and you have to work in... But he says these principles are ones you, you just don't try and get around. The first is... Deal with the sin, deal with the issue. Be discriminating. If it's someone else's job to be doing that, then you don't have to. But focus those people back to deal with that thing. If they won't deal with it, then either get involved and if they don't want any help, then move on. Because when you actually are giving stuff to people, help those people who are responding to it. Let me take it all out of there and put it into a separate scenario which I have no idea how I'm going to deal with. Refugees. All right. They come here. Let's say they come from an Islamic country. Let's make it really hard for me. They arrive on our shore. They don't have any friends. They're in need. They don't have money. What do we do? Have we got, have we got those microphones? There's a couple of microphones before we have questions. I want some help here in solving my situation. Actually, if, I, if someone can just see, all right, you're going to help, you're going to help me out with this one. But what's, what do we do? How, how do we be discriminating and helping people? What are some of the, if we're going to apply these principles to that situation? People rock up next door here. They don't have family. They're struggling with having enough money. They're refugees in the country. They're from an Islamic group. How do we become discriminating there? Anybody got any help? Nobody. That's tough. <laughs> Leave it up to the pastors. Can you take the microphone around to Pastor Darrell, please? 
Pass it out. Islamic refugee family turns up, they knock on the door, Kylie says you better talk to Daryl. She doesn't want to deal with it. Leona's out having a cup of coffee. They wander in and they say, we want you to help us. How are you going to be discriminating? Is this one working? Go away. <laughs> I think I'd want to talk to them first and hear their story, um, find out what's going on for them. Part of the process of discerning is um, then evaluating um, what they need and having done that, taking what you've said tonight, it's to say that I represent the Lord Jesus. So what do they need? Do they need food for paying a bill? Is it petrol? Is it food or whatever? Um, the government gives them all of that. They just want more. I'm being really crass now. Please forgive me. I'm just pushing him a little bit. Yeah. When um, someone comes to us, our church policy is that we don't give anybody any money. Um, no, we don't give you money. I need $20. No, sorry. We can buy you something. We can do something for you, but we can't. we won't give you money. So then another question is, well, then if you've arrived and you're receiving a government pension or support, how much is it and what have you done with it? Discerning. You've got this much, what have you done with it? And people say, you can't be that intrusive on someone else's life. Yes, you can. Yes, you have to be. It's the Lord's money that people have given for the use within his family to give. And if we don't ask those sorts of questions, we're not being discerning. If they've spent the money on a big screen TV that they don't need, and trust me, you don't need a big screen TV, and they're struggling, they don't know how to budget, let's get back to the issue and say, look, next time the check comes in, let's help you budget, because that's something you don't need to buy. But we want to buy it. We're going to help you budget if you want help and need from us. They're the sorts of issues that have to be talked about and mentioned. It's, it's not easy stuff. It's very practical. They say, look, we, we want your help, but we don't want to have anything to do with the church. What happens next? Any help? That was let them walk. Is everyone comfortable with that? Put your hands up if you're not comfortable. They say to Daryl, look, we don't want the sermon. We don't want anything to do with the church. We just want the money. And he says, sorry, take a hike. Graciously, lovingly. Who's comfortable with that? Who's really uncomfortable with that? Right. Did you see why I didn't want to preach on this topic tonight? Man up. <laughs> Treat younger men as brothers. Got a you, birth certificate? Wait a second. Um, that's for you. I'm looking at mine. Do not rebuke <laughs> an older man harshly. <laughs> if, as the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented to people, they, they don't always respond straight away. But if there's a complete rejection of it, if they are not prepared to accept this in Christ's name, then I think what he's saying is they're dead. 
They don't want to respond to Jesus. They're not coming to God to ask him for help. They're coming to people and they just want it covered over. They don't want to deal with the issue. Move along. They're not really in need. When they come and they begin to recognize the relationship that they have to change in having with God, then continue to help them. As they progress in discipleship to coming to know Jesus Christ, continue to reach out because what God is after is change. He's after redemption. He wants to bring his people back to himself. If they're consistently or wanting to head away from him, he lets them go. And we say that's hard. Paul is saying that's our responsibility because otherwise we fall into the trap that the world falls into all the time and I think the church falls into all the time, which is saying come to Jesus and you don't have to change. Come to Jesus, everything's going to be okay. That's not true. Repent and accept that Christ is Lord and he has the right now as your Lord to say, this is how I want you to live in my world. You're to be a changed person. The Holy Spirit's going to come in and fill you and going to make you like Christ. This has to flow not just from our relationships with one another, not just in our morality personally, but even how we deal with our finances and when we do the good deeds of helping others. It's supposed to flow out into that. Just as an older man again coming back at you, back with a Muslim, my conversation with him, Yes. And I say to him, I want to offer you this in the name of the Lord Jesus. He says, no, I don't want the sermon. I don't want the gospel literature. I just want the help. Would it be appropriate then for me to go, all right, I will help you. I'll buy the petrol. I'll buy the food. I'll do that. But I am doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus. There is no more after this. But I do this in his name. And if you receive it, you're receiving it in his name. If they then choose, no thanks, I can't accept that. Well, that's their choice. Oh, I think that's fair enough. That's why I think you've got this 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 greyish type. They're not grey. That's maybe that's not true. You've got this understanding that we're helping people in a particular situation. The discernment is if you're not prepared to grow and to move through that, then don't come back, because we're moving on, and you, God expects this relationship to be a growing one. With him. All right, before I close, any other questions people have? <coughs> Opening myself up here completely, be nice. Any other questions? Microphone's there. Feel free, anything. Nothing. Down the back. Um, my concern is that family that you said no to, if they have children, are the children getting the view that, well, don't go to the church because they just turn you away? Possibly. But why are we turning them away? I don't think it's the fact that you're turning them away. I think it's the fact that there's an expect. Maybe it's the fact that as they... What we are trying... To, what I think Paul is trying to say is that the expectation that people are supposed to have at the church is that when you go and you, you interrelate with the church, there's an expectation that you get into a relationship with God. And if you're not prepared to have a relationship with God and you just want to have a relationship with people, then don't go to the church to do that. Because the church is a place where God is so intertwined amongst everything that happens within the, the good that is done, with the gospel that's preached, with the needs that are met, that you're supposed to respond to him. I, I brought this up in conversation during the week with Daryl. Um, 
What about the 10 lepers who were healed? Only one came back, didn't they? Only one came back and said, thank you. But you notice Jesus' response? Where are the other nine? His expectation was as people received this blessing from God that they would come back and say thank you. His expectation was that as they, they related to him, that their response would be one of thanks back to him. So that as people receive this not from us, but from God, the expectation is that they come back and respond back to God with thankfulness. And if they don't do that, then we move on and Paul says they're not really in need. They want to continue on in that lifestyle. Maybe the best thing to do is leave man in the cold for a while. Understand that it's the relationship with God which is at the core of their fundamental problem. You have to deal with that. Any other people have a question before we close off and pray with next step? Yeah, um, you can get some people who are going to lie to you. Like they'll say, yes, they will follow God and um, you give them the thing. Um, what do you do in that situation? Absolutely. People lie to you all the time. And I think there's the, there's the um, I think partly it's a discerning issue. And the other part, if you're going to err, err on grace. I think that, you know, I lie to Jesus lots of times. Take that as I mean it. I mean, not all that. But, you know, you come and you know what you should do and you want to respond, but then after a little while you kind of move aside and he always welcomes us back and he, he's always gracious towards us. But there's that, that to and froing in the relationship that's an expectation that has to be there. And I suppose what Paul is against is those people who, who say, I don't want to be participating in this movement towards knowing God. I don't want to have anything to do with it. If there's no questions, my last... There's a question, yeah. I'll just have a quick one. Um, let's call this a completely hypothetical situation, but if you aren't happy with the way the church is distributing funds when it comes to your personal discernment with how you're giving your money to um, God's work, like, uh, you know, uh, what's the best way to address that issue for yourself? Like, you still want to support the work of the church, you know, provide for the pastors, but you want to look elsewhere to give your money for, for one reason or another? I suppose my first suggestion would be I think you have to be in communication with the church that's finding out why you're not happy with what they're doing. If they're obeying certain principles of Scripture that you think they shouldn't, or if they're not obeying principles that you think they should, I think that conversation has to happen. Um, and then I think the understanding has to be that outside of all of that, after I've given, because there's things that you must give to um, to the church family that you belong to, which isn't just for the needy, and so you have to participate in that. But the difficult thing is if we are going to then give of our own finances to the needy in the circumstances that we come across, we have to apply the same principles. Um, so I think that dialogue has to happen first and then we move on. Let me give one example where I think the church falls down. It's going to be a very specific pointed example. All right. So it's going to cause maybe some friction. All right. I'm just telling you that up front. But it's just more to get you thinking of it during the week. All right. So you can come and talk to me afterwards, but it's more as a dialogue to get you interested in thinking about it rather than just have a come down hard and fast on it. So maybe rather than say, well, I think it's failing, this is a thing where you could think about. How should the church support the need of chaplaincy in schools? 
There is a great need in schools to care for young people who come from families that don't know about God, who come from broken families who need counselling, who need care. There's a great need in that situation. We now have the situation, say, with Scripture Union, where a chaplain is not allowed to talk about God. He individually does it in Jesus' name, but he's not allowed to discuss that or talk about that in all that he does. Should the church fund that? Should the church fund someone to do good in a situation when the person who's doing it is not allowed to talk about Jesus? has to do it quietly in assumption that it's about Jesus and isn't allowed to require people, no matter whether they're young or they're old, to respond to the fact that this is Christ helping them in a situation. I'm not answering that one. I'm leaving it there for your discussion at the end of the service. right? So that you just don't go and have coffee without something to talk about. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, we live in a needy world. We live in a place where there is so much poverty. So many people who are not just poor financially, but they're poor emotionally. They're, they're, Father, sin is at work in so many people's lives. Families have been destroyed. Father, help us as your people to not just respond the way the world does and throw money at these situations, or even just throw our time at these situations to cover them up. Father, I pray that you will convict us in our hearts that we need to be Jesus Christ's hands and feet in these situations to get down to the the nitty-gritty, the root cause, the sin. That's the cause. The brokenness in the families, the addictions that are in people's lives, the bad budgeting that happens within the families because they don't have training. Father, we, we need to get down to the issues of the wasting of resources in third world countries, the corruption, etc. We need to get down at that level. Father, help us always as we reach out in your name as your hands and feet to take the message of Christ, not just in deed but in word, not just in word but in deed. Father, help us to be discerning and discriminating as your people. Thoughtful, careful, mindful that all that we have is from you and you want us to use it in your name. Father, help us to continue to have these discussions as we wrestle with what it means to be a Christian, different from society, different from the world, but conformity to your will and your word. Father, we only do that together as a family as we discuss and we think this thing through. Help us as we discuss it to act towards one another as family. Help us to treat those who are older with respect and honour. Help us to treat those who are our peers as our brothers and our sisters. Help us to treat those who are younger as our kid brothers, our kid sisters, our sons and our daughters. That we care for them, we nurture them, we love them. And then in all of our responses, one with another, as we rebuke, as we challenge, as we confront, as we love, that it will be done in that mindset and with purity in our thought and action. Father, I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. Amen.